We're at a point where things can create code, where we have Kubernetes GPT, where we have you know, all these different things that, that are starting to happen. If we're not in a much better place in even five years, then, then I'd be really surprised. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. Fellow evangelist Chris Norman and I spoke with Michael Chenitz of Cisco's OutShift team and of the Cloud Unfiltered podcast about his thoughts on securing Kubernetes and where the project and community go from here. I hope you enjoy the discussion and please reach out with thoughts of your own. And as always, please join us again for more important open source conversations. You can find more from the team at open.intel at open.intel.com and at open at Intel on Twitter. So, hey, we are back again with another super fun cloudy episode, as I'm going to call it. You may recall recently we went, we went cloud native on the desktop with George Castro, and that was really fun. Today, Chris Norman is joining me again. My colleague, Chris, who is lovely and works in the open ecosystem (laughs) team at Intel with me. And we're talking to Michael Chinitz, who is with Cisco and has been around the cloud native ecosystem a little bit longer than, frankly, either of us. And this is going to be a really exciting conversation. Just by means of background, I feel like I could have used a guide like Michael a couple of years ago when I found myself uh, on an engineering team having to learn Kubernetes as a beginner and working on a microservice and going from that very monolithic, oh, let's call it the old way of doing things, maybe, to suddenly I'm, oh, here I am in the cloud. Classic. Exactly. Oh, yes, classic application (laughs) development. And then uh, having to learn, what what is this? What is this? Uh, What is Kubernetes and pods and clusters and Helm and logs and Argo and all of these things? And oh my, right? And and as we all know, I bet everyone listening has seen that diagram, you can't see my air quotes, but there's the giant diagram of the cloud native ecosystem and it can be kind of overwhelming. So Michael is kind of our tour guide, I think for today. Yeah. But <laughs> w- way to build it up, you know, and now, now it can only go downhill from here, you know, so. <laughs> no, impossible. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I often think about that. So, so, you know, to me, being, being around this and kind of growing with the cloud native ecosystem as, as it's grown, we, we kind of take for granted for the people that, that have been here for a while that, you know, we've grown with it. And, and the problem is, is that the problem, the good and the bad is that there's a huge ecosystem around this whole cloud, cloud native thing these days. And, you know, so there's so many options, but I, I often think about the fact that, you know what, if, if I was new right now coming into this ecosystem, then I would be massively overwhelmed with, with everything that's out there. And where do I even start? Because typically, here's how it goes. Typically, you go to your, your CTO says, hey, you know, we want to modernize this app. We want to, we have some elements maybe we want to put in the cloud. Some kind of terminology like that ha- occurs. And then they, it, roll, it kind of rolls downhill. And then somebody says, hey, I was told that I need to do this thing called microservices and that I need to rebuild this app and, and kind of blow it up and kind of, it's almost like that deconstructed dessert that you eat or whatever it is. We're deconstructing this whole thing. And I have to figure out not only what my dev environment is going to look like, how people are going to interact with that dev environment, but also how to implement it into this thing called Kubernetes. So you go and you go to the you know Kubernetes website first, maybe, or you, or the CNCF, depending on where, where you're coming 
your entry point. But let's say you just go into Kubernetes. If you go into Kubernetes, you're, 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 you instantly look at all the requirements. You know, the, first of all, you, are you going to do bare metal? Are you going to do it on the cloud? Uh, if you are going to do bare metal, you know, how are you going to implement it? How, what kind of CNI? What kind of CSI? Do you need a load balancer? Do you need a, and by the way, do you want to do security? Oh, that's an add-on too. And typically, by the way, most people, you know, that are, that are just getting into Kubernetes and anybody feel free to argue online that when you're hearing this, I, argue against me. I won't hear it, so I don't care. Uh, but, uh, you know. Shout so, at but, your podcast player. But, but yes, but typically they, you know, they don't care about security first. What they care about is getting that application up and running. Up you're running. putting it in a dev sure. environment. You're not caring about security. So you're just, all you're caring about is this, I got to get this to work somehow. And that's the first thing. But then yeah. quickly after that, you've gotten this application that you're told has to get out the door three weeks ago. And now you have to, now you go to your team, to your DevOps team and your, or your platform engineering team. And you're like, Hey, I got to get this up now. And then they're like, well, did you meet all these security requirements? You're like security requirements. Yeah. What? Uh, is yeah. What is that? <laughs> and, and then you have to, then you have to dig even further into this whole plethora of documentation that is how to configure something like Kubernetes securely or how to configure all the other elements that you're thinking about. And that's really the part that's really, really difficult, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. You know, I think it's always a good reminder that people don't necessarily have a security first mindset as much as, as much as we all wish that that were the case. At the end of the day, most developers are trying to make a thing happen, period, right? They, they, mm -hmm. You're under a deadline. You're and trying that's what to make they're paid work. for. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a that's a great reminder. I'm glad you kind of started with that. Yeah, it's what they're paid for, and it's what they're actually meant to do. So really, you don't want to disturb that because that's what's going to make you money. So you want the developers to develop, but you want to create some kind of ecosystem, or whether it's standards or um, different tooling or whatever it may be that that you might want to put in place so that they can do it securely. Do you think there is too much choice now? I mean, is there do people get affected by decision paralysis because there's so many different components to pick and mix from? I, I do think there is. I think that people get overwhelmed by it. What I, what I think there's a need for, and and I'm trying to figure out who who would actually create this. I mean, the CNCF was obviously does a lot there, but you know, I, I think I think there needs to be more of like this curated view of like here's different levels of things that you might need to do. If you need to do this, then maybe try these couple of options, you know, that you have here. And I know that there's, that's hard to do because there's a lot of different companies and things like that, but it would be nice to just say, here are the types of things that you should look at if you're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, a recipe so, book. yeah, like a recipe book of, of here's, you know, because people don't even know where to start and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's legitimately overwhelming, even for people who've been in it for, for years. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it's going to be equally overwhelming for people who haven't. As far as being overwhelming, I was thinking, you know, the more you get into the work you're doing in this ecosystem, right, it, because of uh, maybe the nature of microservice architecture, you get very focused and very specialized in your little your little bubble, right, of whatever project or, or you know, functionality you're working working on. And meanwhile, there's this grand ecosystem out there and there's all this other stuff and all of this and progress is being made that maybe you can't keep track of. And I think I think this this is an issue for everyone, right? It's not just beginners. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's a huge issue. And, and I and it's funny that you mentioned like, like, 
you know, that you're, you're working in your little bubble. There's been so many times where I've gone headfirst into one piece of the technology surrounding, you know, Kubernetes, learned everything about it, came back like four months later and totally forgot everything I've learned. So, yeah. so you know, there's, there's, there's definitely that too, where you're just like working in your own bubble. Usually I work on it so heavily and then all of a sudden I'm not working on it for, you know, a lot of time. But, but coming back around to, to kind of the, the, the key concept of what we were talking about here is that, you know, this leads for a lot of security risk because mm-hmm. of the fact that, you know, you have a lot of people that are new. You have a lot of people that, that might just know what they know and don't know enough about security. Or you might have people that are that security is this thrust upon them. And then they don't really know the best practices. They're not security experts, but they are, you know, they know somewhat about their domain. And so they do what they think is right. All of that leads to leads to different kinds of security vulnerabilities and issues. So, okay, given given that you know, which I I tend to agree with, where would you where do you start? I guess that's where I'd like to start the conversation. Really, is where do you look for these points of potential vulnerability? If you're if you if you're not coming into this with uh, a lot of security expertise, which you certainly can't expect everyone to have. Um, where where's that low hanging fruit where you should be looking and trying to identify places to focus on to secure what you're working on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So first of all, the Kubernetes site has a um, has a great page on securing cloud native security, and and I can post a link somewhere. I don't know, it's some long link. You probably don't want me to put all the letters and stuff <laughs> on a on a radio show. It probably wouldn't be good. But no, but what is, it what's good about it? is that it does give you different guidelines. One of the things it talks about is like the four C's of cloud native security, which is like code containers, clusters, and maybe cloud or the, the I guess they wanted to keep on the C word. So they did cloud or colo or corporate data center. So just to keep with the C theme there. But then in each one of those categories, they really break it out. They break it out into like, what do you have to do if you're using infrastructure? What do you have to do if you're, you know, if you want policies between your nodes, you know, and, and all the different capabilities that you need, like role-based access control, like, yeah. um, you know, TLS security and applications. I'm just throwing out a few examples here, but, you know, in, in every one of those areas, they give you kind of the best practices. So, so yes, there is a page. So if you don't know that there is a page that, that lists that, but the other thing to note is that there are tools that can help you with this. So yes, learn about the different things that you need to know within the cloud native ecosystem and especially within Kubernetes, but also also there's tools that can help you with policies and things like that. So you don't have to do it all yourself. The way that I like to see it in a, in a perfect world is developers do what they do and develop, try and create secure code. They know how to create secure code in the best way they can. There's obviously all kinds of fuzzers and things like that that you can use to do mm-hmm. to, to validate all those things, you know, anal- analytics and analysis and all that kind of stuff, but that you could do there, but then put in the, put in kind of these stop, these, these kind of stop gaps or gates that would actually check to see, okay, does that image have a vulnerability? Does that uh, layer in an image have a vulnerability? You know, it can go down to the layers, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things to do, but some of those applications that are even open source and closed source actually rate, you know, where the highest vulnerabilities are. Uh, mm-hmm. Supply chain's a thing these days, you know, the because we're developers and we want to develop fast, I always say we're, we're, we're lazy in a good way in that we, we want to get our job 
done in the fastest way possible, which means that we're going to pull down from the quickest API that will get the job done. We'll worry about the security later and the ramifications of that later. But now what we have to consider is things like supply chain security, API security, you know, all these other layers of security. So depending on what you're doing, there's no, there's not really a good answer because you may need some of these pieces of security or all of these pieces of security, depending on how your app is constructed. Yeah, <laughs> I know that was yeah. a lot. <laughs> but it's very much dependent on the application that you're using, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so depending on if it's an API call or if it's serverless or if it's, you know, whatever, whatever piece of that application or component that you're using, that's what really makes the difference. Do, do people usually come in with a clean slate or do they usually, I, mean, I imagine at this point, a lot of these things are evolving from pre-existing situations. Um, they don't get the opportunity to come in with a clean slate and design everything from scratch. So it's usually an evolution of, of solutions rather than a um, designed solution. How much of an impact does that have? Yeah, well, obviously, if, if you're in a clean slate, I think, you know, it, it still has to go with like your level of uh, maturity with with the technology, you know, but clean slate is always easier in my in my opinion than than to have something that you have to convert and change and do things with you know so 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 you know i think there's an advantage to that because you can use whatever technologies you want a lot of times if you're if you're going you know classic style <laughs> to uh to the um you know to to the microservices then you know in my example i worked for big financial companies a lot of them used databases that were in like IBM mainframes and things like that. So, you know, we, we had to figure out how to create API front ends and, and, you know, and how to query that and then how to convert it and how to batch the data over and then, you know, how to sync it after it's up and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, going legacy, I definitely think there's, there's a, um, a lot more to think about there too. And there's also a lot about how is it currently secured? And usually a lot of times it's coming from a, from a data center or from from a company somewhere and then going up to a cloud. So it's like, well, is there this intermediary period too that's also has some bits in the data center and some bits in the cloud? And now you have to yeah. worry about both both elements of security. You know, what are the firewalls saying in one area? And what are, you know, what are all the policies? What are the VPCs and things like that in the cloud? So there's there's all kinds of things that you have to consider with legacy, with with something that is new. Um, then it's then it's obviously a lot easier because you could build it specifically for for whatever you know whatever platform you choose. So do you, do you find people come in with experts on hand, or do they rely on companies to come in and advise them, or do they just figure it out for themselves? I, again, I think it depends on first of all where are you in the in you know, in the world? Are, are you a enterprise company? Are you a, you know, a mid-sized company? Are you a small startup? You know, depending on where you are, it could be different. You know, if you're a startup, a lot of startups can just go out there and they're just, they have an idea, they're creating code, they're they're also the ones implementing it, they're, they're architecting it, usually they'll re-architect it once, once they figure out that, hey, you know, I learned all this stuff and now I'm going to put that into practice and, 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 and implement it the way that I think is now, now best practice, which... That could be a forever cycle, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and if you're in the enterprise, a lot of times you'll go to a consulting company and you'll say, Hey, you know, we need to get from, you know, a lot of times it's going from legacy to, to, you know, microservices and they'll help you along that way, you know? So it really just depends on 
where you are in the world and, and you know, in, in terms of like your company size and what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. And how friendly your cloud service provider is as well, maybe. Cloud service provider. I mean, I, l- listen, I, I depend on cloud service providers a lot, but in the early days of cloud service providers, and I don't think this is as prevalent anymore, it was... We just want you to get your stuff here. There wasn't a lot of information. And I don't really blame the, the cloud service providers because honestly, they were just getting into it too. Mm-hmm. But so so what people tended to do was they took the, they said, hey, we're, we're going to go cloud first. So companies would be like, yeah, go cloud first. And then they would be like, uh, yeah, we're just going to take what we have here and just put it up there. That's right. a very expensive second data center. Lift, that lift is not cloud first. Lift and shift. So yeah, lift and shift totally. Yeah. So so, but I think they've gotten a lot more advanced now in that they provide a lot more information. They provide a lot of that education on on what you need to do and and things like that. But again, it's that complexity that leads to this this kind of a lot of the security issues that you're seeing today. And I think that's true even if you are starting from scratch, or at least my feeling of Absolutely. about it is, even if you you don't have the burden of uh, adopting legacy. Uh, systems and, and and that sort of thing. I think that you know you still are in this position because it necessarily has so many new moving parts and so many pieces that need to communicate with other somewhat external pieces. Right? It's all of these things. It's swimming in this giant pool, but they're all discrete. And so each, I it, my feeling was always like it was almost like I don't know wearing a dress made of holes. Right? And you're <laughs> like here are all of these per- opportunities where where data is exchanged or or secrets. So, you know, we can talk about secrets management. To me, that was always something that was unnecessarily scary, probably. But <laughs> but there is this feeling of, of, of um, let's say, a heightened awareness of needing to protect things in transit just because there are so many more moving pieces. Or at least mm-hmm. that was my perception. Am I getting that right? Again, no, it's, it's totally, been a minute totally, since I worked totally on wrong, this, And we're just not going to talk about that. <laughs> it's been a minute since I've worked on it. Or was that my own security paranoia? No, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think especially something like like secrets, which, first of all, um, there's so many different ways of managing secrets. And then it's like, where do you store the secrets? Where do you keep, you know, how do you store them? How do you access them? How do you open a vault? How do you, you know, and, and, and all, all these, these different places need to yeah. share the secrets, right? Yeah, so many all, more all, than in a legacy system. And in, yeah, in my experience, all these concepts that are, that are extremely scary and, and, and rightfully so. I mean, because secrets are something just like that. You, you want to keep them secret. So, you know, obviously there's going to be, um, you need, you need to put a lot of thought around there. But the other the other interesting thing that I find a lot is it's not always about the tech too, because think about companies that have been at this a while. When I first come in, came into tech and I was a network engineer, whew, that was a long time ago, uh, and then I was <laughs> in network security, but um, you know, we were very siloed and a lot of companies still are, believe it or not. You know, So that means that there was a network team, there was a server team, there was a development team. You know, you know what we didn't do really well was communicate between those teams. So because of this new, you know, kind of converged world where, where we, we, we look at things a little differently, we think, of, we think of the application first. It used to be that, I mean, to go back, we, we used to think about like the network and then, then the, you know, the, the switch and then the server and then, you know, maybe up to the VM level. Now we think about it in the opposite way, which is let's take that application-centric view. But in order to do that, we have to also communicate between teams. And, and a lot of times where, where, where I see a lot of the gaps are is in that communication. And, a lot of, and, and what we're seeing now is that 
everybody had their own like monitoring and, and, and ways of doing it. Like network team had their monitoring, server team had their monitoring. You know, sometimes those things were converged, but development would have like their own APM or something like that. And, and you would always have different views of the same problem. And what there's a need for now is, is more of that, let's look at the same data in different ways because we need to look at it more converged. We need the teams to, to work together. We need this stuff to happen so that we can, ha- we can be more secure. First, you have to understand what you have and see mm-hmm. that visibility. And then you have to be able to make decisions that are business impacting potentially or, or, or things like that. So there's a lot more correlation and a lot more of that inner, inner team uh, operability that you may need. So that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's you a can't, good thing. You can't secure what you can't see, right? I, you know, I, I feel like that phrase has come up in many of my recent conversations. Um, <laughs> you can't see it, you can't secure it. I, I wanted to go back to something you said about... Oh, I said something interesting. Okay, let's go. <laughs> well, you said many interesting things, actually. But um, you, 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 were talk- you were talking about, I, I think you mentioned the word logging in there a few times. <laughs> that made me think of external tooling and and that sort of thing. And I wondered if you had any kind of recommendations um, about external tooling that might be helpful. In terms of anything or just in terms of logging? Well, I mean, I guess it could be anything, but but the <laughs> logging, you know, if you, if you can uh, fit logging in there, that'd be great. Yeah, no, I mean, t- to me, it's more important to have a central source of, of something like that because you really want to have more of a central source of truth. But in order to do that, you have to be able to, you know, discern what's important and what's not important. But, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of like, you know, the whole Prometheus and Grafana and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And, you know, all the tools around that, Um, you know, so, so things like that are, are still incredibly important. There, there are definitely newer tools out today that, that can, can look at a much more, a much smaller kind of, I want to say diameter, they can get much more in the micros of, of how things work in, especially in the cloud native, whereas those, Kind of take a like Prometheus and Grafana kind of kind of take a sample that's a little bit bigger. So so you know you want to if you want to get a, a smaller sample size, then you need to use different tools. And so there are some tools like that that are there's a, there's a bunch of them that are that are closed source. But but really to me, I mean, for for things like um, logging, I mean, I'm I'm pretty standard. I'm pretty pretty much Prometheus Grafana kind of. Mm-hmm kind of yeah. person to, to get my analytics and my logging and all those kinds of things. Um, but in terms of other tools, I mean, there's so many tools that are out there that are open source and that can help you with things, things that can tell you like, okay, well, wh- what's on your network? Like um, uh, in terms of uh, scanning for, for vulnerabilities, things like Falco, things like that we have in, in emerging tech, or we're now called Outshift, by the way, we changed our name. Uh, we're, we're called Outshift now, and we have we have open source tools called Open Clarity that help you with things like API Clarity, and um, that tells you about your APIs, Kube Clarity, that tells you about Kubernetes, and um, what am I forgetting? Oh, API Kube and uh, VM Clarity, which tells you about VMs. And there's some other ones in there too, but those are all open source. They're all free, you know, and there's a lot of vendors out there that have these types of tools. Really, the more important thing is, is how do you implement these tools and get the information you want? So really what you need to do is figure out what do you want to get first and then go back to the tools. This is a common problem I find in in people that are techies. And I include myself in this, so so I can be one of these people. And, and the problem is that, we try and pick a platform first 
without figuring out what are, what were we trying to solve? Even in the case of Kubernetes, Kubernetes might not be the right solution for what you want to do. Right. But a lot yeah. of people are like, yeah, I'm going to program for Fair. Kubernetes microservices. Okay, well, do you need scalability? Do you need a way to look at microservices or work with microservices as a development team that you can all work in your own little silos and then kind of bring it together later? That That's a need. Do you need to scale it out on demand? Do you need to be able to do things like Canary where you bring things in easily and kind of, you know, phase them in? So depending on your requirements, you know, I always say, look at what your requirements are first, then search for the tooling that matches those requirements. I'm the worst person at that. I can tell you, I do not do that. But, right. but like, I do toy. recommend, I want to play with the new cool I, I, but that's my job. I'm in, a, I'm in Outshift, which yeah. is emerging tech at Cisco. And, and for me, it's my job to look at these. So I have an excuse. I have an out. Okay. Yep, you do. But, but you know, for, for the, for the most people, it's really beneficial to, to really think about what your needs are first, because it'll be a lot less daunting to try and figure out what tools you need based on those needs. So which tool are you most excited about right now? Ooh, oh man. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get excited about all of them, honestly. I can't really call <laughs> out one. I think that, um, you know, every, there's all, all different types of elements that, that are neat. I think it's neat when you can correlate things together. I think it's neat when you could get not only technical value, but business value out of things. So a lot of these new tools that are called, and I hate the term full stack observability, and my company is going to kill me for saying that because they're all into FSO. <laughs> but but I do like the concept of, hey, you know, what the full stack observability is, is the idea that you're all working off that same data source. You're all looking at different views. You just got, you just have your slice. And not only that, you're looking at, well, what can I discern from this information? Not only like what's the straight data, but what could I discern from that by, by, by learning that? So what is like this transaction is going to cost this much in money, you know, things like mm -hmm. that, that you wouldn't normally get because you didn't have all that, you know, data in one place. So I think that's interesting. And I really like that space, you know, I, I wonder as you know, the, the, if there's a theme to this conversation, I think it's complexity, right? We keep, we keep coming back to complexity. Yep. Complex things are complex by nature, right? Yes. And there, there's a lot of advantages to that. Obviously there's great benefit and, and, and uh, there are efficiency benefits and scalability benefits, as you mentioned, all of these, 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 the reasons that we do things in this way, right? We get all of these benefits, but there are, there are always costs, right? There's a trade-off. And I just wonder where you see, let's say, the balance between increased complexity and efficiency. So again, the more the more uh, the more tools and the more um, peripheral software and whatnot that you bring into your services and the applications you're working on, you know, there are gains. But at what, like, how do you view that balance of gain versus cost, and when you're talking about complexity in particular? Well, my mathematical formula. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, do you have the answer to the secrets of the universe? Because it, yeah, anyway. um, if we had the no, answer to this question, maybe we would all win. But that, that's you know, you know it's a good, a good question. I can tell you this is that people are getting frustrated. People are getting frustrated with with the sheer amount they have to learn in order to get something done. And I think what people are what what people are yearning for right now is to 
kind of decomplexify things, if that's even a word. Decomplexify. I'm creating that. <laughs> but trademark. Yes, trademark. <laughs> um, but I, th- I think that you know everybody I talk to is like this is so complex, and you see a lot of people moving to things, and it's not always the reason, but you see people moving to things like Wasm because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's not as complex, and it can Much get something something done in a similar fashion using a little bit different technologies. And that's why I say it's not always one technology fits all. It's it's figure mm-hmm. out what, what you need. But but I also see a bunch of tools popping up, like things, you know, like um, you know, my friends over at Acorn, they're they're doing so they're doing some cool things that are looking more like a platform that can get you from code to microservices a lot easier. To me, the biggest gap is is kind of in that I see in the ecosystem is getting from here's my here's my code, all my different microservices. Here's all the different pieces of source code written in six different languages. Here's mm-hmm. all my different Docker files I have to create. Here's all my different help files I have to create. Here's mm-hmm. all the different pieces. And you got to do that over and over again. To me, making that less complex is is a win. And and I think what we're seeing is we're seeing so many tools pop up now that that are that are answering kind of that complexity answer. And and I really really feel that's where people want to go right now. You know, it's it's just more and more that I talk to people it's like it's just, it's just too overly complex. And we have to get back to what is our core value? Our core value is that we need to get these applications out the door. Yeah. And we want re- redundancy and, and high availability and all these other kinds of things. So we have to figure out what does that and who can maintain it. One last point on that is that, unfortunately, this industry has seen a tremendous downsizing in the, in the past uh, you know, few months. And with that, it's, it's left a lot of people that, you know, a lot of companies that were relying on smart people like, like us and, and other people out there that were creating these open source solutions that, that created this whole big thing with connecting 16 different solutions together to, that, that they were going to maintain their whole lives. Now these, now these corporations are like, well, we don't have the people that know how to run this anymore. So, so a, lot of, a lot of what you're seeing is that companies are reevaluating even, you know, like, like how do we maintain this? How do we, how do we get the right people? How do we maintain this? How do we make sure that this is the right solution and that we, maybe we only need four solutions instead of 16, you know, maybe we have to figure out the right, the right balance there too. So there's a lot that's, that's coming along with, with that complexity. Well, it talks to the, the, the trade-off between customization and off the shelf, right? Yeah. If you take something off the shelf, then you can find other people that are used to being able to handle that. If yep. it's a custom solution, then obviously you need people yeah. that are aware of that customization, which may be hard to find. Yeah. And, and, and so th- that's one of the things to consider is everybody's like, well, it's open source, so it's free. Well, right. not really free. You <laughs> really need puppy, pretty smart yeah. people to, to <laughs> operate that. And that may cost more than the off to the self solution. It may not, but it's an, it's an evaluation point. You know, it's, it's a point that you have to consider when you're, when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about, well, who's going to maintain this while I'm going through it. Listen, I'm the biggest open source proponent. I love open source, yeah. but I'm going to say it might not be right in all scenarios. You know, just like everything else I say, maybe that should be my trademark. It's, it might not be right <laughs> in all scenarios. <laughs> Mileage may vary. <laughs> yes. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to think that like you that open source is the answer i'm heavily biased though i have to say this like every episode but i really don't understand the world beyond open source because i've been so enmeshed in open source for so long i i lack perspective on the other side of things you know and i'm increasingly aware again because of being involved in security conversations that most things kind of are open source if it like people 
you know, I, I had that conversation recently, but you know, of course there's still proprietary software. Well, yes, of course. Yes, of course. There's but even, yeah, in, in the cloud native, even, even, even the yeah. proprietary stuff is based exactly. on open source. Yeah. Exactly. So much of it is using open source components and, and yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, that's what you see these days is most of the set. Well, there's two things that happen. One is that most of the successful projects have a, have a closed source, rightfully so you can't make, you have to make money somehow. We can't just all be, you know, creating stuff and, and sustain it unless somebody's supporting it. And there's the, the second thing is, is that, you know, a lot of companies are just using open source as a way in, you know, where, whereas that's, that's the kind of, I don't, I don't feel as good about that, that piece of it, you know, like, like, I think that you should be doing open source because you want to do open source, you know, but yeah. you see, but you see a little of both that. And then you have like the cloud providers that obviously consume a lot of the, of, of the open source too. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, <laughs> that, we could do a whole show about that, but. Uh, good. You're but welcoming yeah, me like, back already. I see. You know, I think, well, back. yeah, obviously you know, I'm, I'm having fun. I hope you're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> so. Something that you said again. This is offline, you know, in our kind of prep for this conversation. Sure. There was a phrase that keeps that I keep going back to and sticks in my mind, and that Kubernetes is relatively new. Yeah. And I, I I love that you say that because I don't know. I guess our our, our well, I can say a lot of things about our all of our perception of time these days. It's a little <laughs> skewed, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, in terms of the history of software and the history of open source software, Kubernetes is relatively new. Yes. And that in, in itself is interesting. And I think, I don't know, when you said that, it was like, oh, wait, is it? Oh, yeah, you know, I guess it is. Because I, it seems to have boomed in a way, you know, since its, its introduction, I guess, that makes me think that it's just been around forever. And it... it and you know, I, I guess I have you been around from like the, the oh, early days. I, I was a caveman, doctor? and then I I changed to like Neanderthal. <laughs> well, again, then, we said know. it's relatively new, so it can't be that long ago. But in the Kubernetes land, you know, how how long have you been around? Yeah, no, I've been around for quite a while. You know, so so a little bit of my history is that when you know in, in the when I when I came to Cisco, you know, over six years ago now. Um, you know, I, I really came on to, to handle a lot of stuff in cloud. And, and one of the things that, that I was on was, was a lot of the cloud management platforms and then things like Terraform and then things like, mm. and then I got involved and brought in to, to manage our Kubernetes service. Everybody knows that we had a Kubernetes service, right? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but we did have a Kubernetes service. And uh, so, I, so I was brought on to, to, to uh, be a technical marketing engineer for that. And, you know, even before that, I was very interested in these technologies. I was a consultant for, for, you know, 20 plus years of my life consulting for fortune 500 companies where I did networking, security and cloud. So, so, you know, I've been around the ecosystem a long time. I was using Linux in the 1.0, you know, or even pre 1.0 time period (laughs) when you still had to compile things and you had to put the kernels in and all. all, 1.0. Hold on. I think I just did this trivia. 1.0 was released in 94. Is that right? It it may have been. I don't even remember. We're going to cut this part. We don't talk about those. Free free BSD before (laughs) that. And, you know, I I was playing around with Xenix and a bunch of other things. So in the early days, so I've been around for a while and uh, yeah, my shelf life is wearing thin probably, but. But uh, (laughs) I just had to look it up. Kubernetes was the initial release of Kubernetes was September of 2014. Yeah. And, I mean, that doesn't seem like that long ago. That, it was that wasn't eight that years long ago. ago. Yeah. No. The first time I ever touched it was only two years ago. 
There was this thing before that called Docker. I don't know if you guys remember that. Well, sure. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, now we're moving on. And now there's so many other things. I mean, now there's micro VMs. And now there's, you know, all these other kinds of technologies that are spinning off of this. You know, so there's, you know, so many different technologies. Now we're like, okay, well, we need part of the VM, but not all of the VM. Well, we need part of the container, but not all the container. And we need, you know, <laughs> we just have to make up our minds. That's all. Yeah. Where do you see it going in the future? So, you know, it's funny because I, I had Kelsey Hightower last week or two weeks ago on, I was interviewing him and it's funny. Mm-hmm. He's like, if we're still doing Kubernetes in 20 years, then we're in trouble because we haven't shifted enough in, <laughs> in, in what we're doing. And really uh, to me, I, this is where I want to be. I want to be in a state where we're worried about these mi- things called maybe microservices or what these little capsules that can communicate together. Mm-hmm. But I hope we have a much better way of orchestrating this stuff because even though I love Kubernetes and I'm a fan, I feel like we have AI now. We have all these other things. There should be a better way of doing these things. Like, why do I have to create a YAML file for everything? Right. There should be a way to self-discover that there's this new service that's coming up. It's been injected. I've discovered it. It's going in. And maybe there's some some methodology that you put in there for for figuring, you know, for for telling it when you want to do certain things. But but there should be more of this self-awareness. And maybe that's a scary thought. Maybe I'm scaring too many people with AI and self-awareness. But <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I feel like there, there should be a better way of handling these things at that point. You know, why are we doing so much? We shouldn't be at this state. I mean, I'm using not not for just for, here's my disclaimer, not for company use, but I am using Copilot for my private, you know, type of stuff to write AI code now. I've tried that out. I shouldn't say using I've tried it out to see how it's working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so we're at a point where things can create code, where we have... Kubernetes GPT, where we have, you know, all these different things that, that are starting to happen. If we're not in a much better place in even five years, then, then I'd be really surprised. Can you talk a little bit more about Kubernetes GPT? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had Alex Jones on the other day um, uh, on my show, and um, he created this uh, Kubernetes GPT, which is a tool that will automatically uh, do some troubleshooting on your Kubernetes by just using some using GPT in the back end. There's another tool, and I forget what it's called, but there's another Kubernetes tool that will actually, you could just write like a description of what you want and will create the YAML file. Oh, and wow. that's a totally different tool, but there's right. a lot of stuff out there now. I mean, even, you know, obviously you can do that using just OpenAI too, but it's nice to have it integrated in some of these tools too. So really, really neat and transformational. Yeah, I could see, you know, again, back to our general theme of complexity. I could see, you know, one of the benefits of reducing complexity through, you know, using these yeah. AI tools. Yeah. But, but, but the problem with all these, you know, automated tools is you have to know what they're doing. You have to be able to take over when they run out of steam and they say they get you partway down the path. And you need to know, A, that you've gone down the right path and then B, what to do when it runs out of steam and where to go from there. Yeah. That's a really good point because as I've been playing around with like Copilot and AWS Code Whisper and all these other things just to see how they work, one of the things that's really inherent, at least at this point, is that you really have to still understand code. If I didn't know Go, if I didn't know Rust, if I didn't know Python, whatever it is, you wouldn't be able to get you because you can't at this point say, hey, create this application for me. I want it to do X, Y, and Z. It just doesn't do that. What you can say is, hey, I'm looking for a function for multiplication that will use two variables to do X, Y, and Z. Or I'm looking for it to pull down a tweet from Twitter. But as you're trying to do that, you have to know that, hey, 
I need a struct first. And you have to start typing struct. And then it has to know that that you're typing struct. And then a lot of times you might do an import, but then at the end, it starts to import the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you know that's the end of it because it's starting to import the same thing. It's starting to put the same statement over and over again. That's when I know it's at the end of that. And I have to put like a bracket and 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 say, take the, the, the 25 same imports that I've statements that I put in there out of that. So, so I, you know, I know that, that that imports there. Then I go to the struct. Then I go to like a func, a func or a function or whatever it is, depending on what your language is or a def in Python, doesn't matter. And then you start to create that function. And a lot of times, again, it will create like a duplicate function over and over again. So you actually have to know what you're doing and have to understand what the framework of the language looks like and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we're at a place where it can do some stuff for you, but you still have to have that knowledge. It's not taking away anybody's jobs anytime soon. So I feel like again we've 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 talked a lot about complexity and a, and a little bit about risk and about you know go, approaching things with a security mindset and being I suppose being careful right as you get in uh, acclimated to a new way of doing things but um, I don't I'm not sure we've talked enough about why why do you love Kubernetes because again I, I want to make sure that we're giving the impression that it that it is worth it at the end of the day if it's the right tool for you right. So, yeah, no, no, don't use it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, the reason why I like it is because I come from, you know, as I said, I, I did a lot of consulting during my time. And I think about what the struggles were that, that I struggled with. And this is for my own personal needs. So so f- the, the struggles I struggled with is that when you were in a legacy type application, the way that you kind of introduced new stuff is you had server A, server B, and, and kind of that's a server, well, I should say um, cluster A and cluster B, really, because you had, a, you had a bunch of clusters that might have been test dev and prod. And your prod was, was, was up and running, and then you'd have to, like, get your network people and get, your, get all these people involved in your security and your, and your developers all on, all on one night. And then you had these change windows. And you were all like, okay, we're going to change it now. We're going to be ready to roll back. And you would do, like, the switch over to, like, you know, a new server. And then if every, then you'd run it for like, you'd stay there for a couple hours, you'd run it and you'd make sure everything looked good. You'd run your analytics, you'd run your tests, you'd run all this stuff. And then once you verified everything was good, then you could go home at like midnight or 1am or whatever it is that, you know, that you're there with something like um, Kubernetes. Now you have these things called microservices and you don't have to worry about that anymore. You just slowly introduce a new microservice. Mm-hmm. They're purpose built for things like if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to do payments, you, you you just and you want to upgrade payments, you just do that microservice and you can slowly introduce it. You could do it in a canary fashion and you could you could have all these like uh, short circuiters and all these kinds of things that can help you with it. So, you know, to me, it's it's getting away from all, all the complexity of the past and adding the complexity of the future. That's all. But but it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it solves a lot of problems for production. And that to me is key. And also how to scale and do all the things that it's really known for, you know, and I think that's what's great about it. You know, it solves some really key problems. So 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 I guess if there's a takeaway here, it's <laughs> Kubernetes. None. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Kubernetes. It's it's great. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, but make sure you go. Make sure you go through your little security checklist. Absolutely. You know, we all collectively in the technology world, I think. I think. I think a lot of people are working toward making the secure way the easy way. So I think if you know if we can if we can start off investigating any new technology like Kubernetes or anything else and try to make it 
secure, but also by, by default, right? It, it, the easiest way being the secure way. If we can all approach when you learn a, a new technology from that perspective, I think we, we will we will have a more secure world. I, I love that, except the the, the 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 downside to having like security first. Or, or as a default state in like, you know, the reason why it's not a default state in Kubernetes is because a lot of people wouldn't know what to do to get the application up and running. So you'd have a lot of issues. So mm-hmm. that's why that's why out of the box, it's in an insecure state. And it's your job to make the good decisions to try and secure the elements in, in, in there. You know, so so that's that's what you need to do. I mean, the biggest thing is like privileges, privileges, if you're allowing it to run root, if you're allowing it to run, you know, whatever that 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 is in a you know, going to give you a lot more attack surface. <laughs> so, so I'll, re- I'd, I'd, I'll revise so that the, maybe the takeaway is just to um, keep an eye out. <laughs> about that. I, I like, I really like, I, I, you know, I hope that we can distill at least a little, a little wisdom. I can go grab my fortune cookie and we can just read something. <laughs> <out of that. laughs> can we just get up the fortune cookie version of how to secure your Kubernetes? Nice. Keep your, uh, keep your ideals flexible and don't oh, there you go. Details. He's got one. <laughs> Your innovative nature will help you come up with a solution. I love that he has that a bunch on his do. desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll skip that one. One of your many attributes is your creative imagination. I love that one. That's a great one to leave on. <laughs> In <laughs> Kubernetes. In <Yes>. Kubernetes. <laughs> In cloud nasal. Oh, my God. That's so funny. This has been really fun. Perhaps a little too much fun. But uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. No, absolutely. I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you coming and, and geeking out with us on, on Kubernetes and giving us a, a realistic picture of, of being careful with one's security. And I hope getting us excited about using Kubernetes when it, when it is the right tool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Uh, and thank you, everyone who has listened to the, thus far. And I will say, I hope you will come back and join us again and, ha- and have more fun and we'll geek out about something else. That sounds like lots of fun. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>